0: I'd like to welcome everybody uh, today on behalf of the Sports Nutrition Group and SENR uh, in the BDA and also Sports Dietetics Australia so that um, uh, this is a a kind of a combined um, effort on both our associations behalf. um, to promote our our practitioners and researchers within um, uh, both organisations and and both parts of the world, really. And today we're really lucky to have um, Professor Neil Walsh. Um, He's Professor of Exercise Immunology at Liverpool John Moores University. And Neil will be presenting um, at the Australian Conference, I think, later on this month, is that right? Um, And then we're also lucky enough to have Associate Professor Ricardo um, uh, Costa who is uh, uh Associate Professor of Sports Dietetics and Extreme Physiology at Monash University and we're really lucky to have Ricardo speaking at our conference which is in November time so this is a really good opportunity um, for both of uh, you guys to kind of um give us a bit of a background on on both of you and then um we can take it from there in terms of um some of the questions that that we have maybe for for 30 to 40 minutes this morning and this afternoon depending on what end of the world you're in (laughs) Neil do you want to um kick off and just maybe give us a wee bit of background on yourself
1: No problem at all, Sharon. So, yes, I'm Neil Walsh. I'm a professor of exercise immunology at Liverpool John Moores University. I spent uh, 19 years at Bangor University. I'm quite recent to Liverpool John Moores, uh, setting up a team there looking at the influence of exercise, acute exercise and training, nutrition and hydration on uh, health and performance. Much of my team's work has focused on uh, the military athlete, if you like, the soldier, and how we can improve the health and performance of soldiers. uh, They're athletes, after all. And uh, during that time, I was lucky enough to supervise uh, Ricardo Costa, who's there on the other side of the world now.
0: And that's a good end for you, Ricardo.
2: (laughs) yeah no thank you very much for inviting me and it's it's great to see uh you know my my old mentor teacher you know and friend again um yeah i well my journey started back in uh birmingham uni where uh, when neil was he, Neil was doing his phd and i was doing my undergrad uh, uh, we both had our sort of our granddad as as, as prof uh, mike leeson who has sort of gone on and retired now um, yeah, I finished my undergrad there and then went on to focus on dietetics and then, yeah, Neil was starting to work with the military and got some projects there and I um, yeah, was lucky enough to do a PhD under Neil's supervision with the Ministry of Defence, uh, again, looking at the areas of exercise, immunology, nutrition. Uh, after the, the great skills that Neil taught me, I was able to implement those uh, here in Australia, setting up my own uh, sort of little team. And our main focus is on um, gastrointestinal issues in the in the athlete, more specifically the ultra endurance athlete, because that's where most of the gut issues and the clinical complications are.
0: Um, and I suppose you both are. I suppose it's a combination of both practice and research. Um, how how did did one take over the other, or did one lead into the other? You know, Ricardo, was that, you know how did you kind of move between the dietetics and the research element of things or was it just very organic it happened?
2: No, correctly it was very organic it's something that we didn't think about going or I didn't think about going into it just sort of gelled so after finishing uh, my PhD with Neil um, I was fortunate enough to have a sort of lecturing research position at Coventry. And I applied for a a postdoc research grant, uh, looking into the nutritional aspects of um, ultra endurance uh, events. And the reason for that is we have little clinic going in Coventry and we're getting a lot of ultra endurance athletes. So this was back in the late uh, 20s, 2010s, uh, early 2010s, sorry. Um, And then when when we were trying to support these athletes, uh, we wanted to go into the guidelines recommendations and you know, what. What should ultra-endurance athletes doing? And, you know, these are people that are racing 250 to 400 kilometres over five to eight days. Some are doing 24 to 40 hours continuous. And when we looked at the literature, there was just nothing there. So we had really nothing to base our practice on. So my postdoc was actually looking at exploratory research, looking at the behaviours of ultra-endurance athletes feeding and drinking behaviours and their status. Um, And then from that research, the main finding we got is, they they suffer from masses and severity of gastrointestinal symptoms um but then when we looked at the practices and strategies that athletes were doing and what the literature says uh, there's really nothing in the literature or no guidance to athletes into prevention and management of these symptoms so sort of that led on to us looking at different strategies to help our athletes
0: and Neil do you how do you tend to apply your practice is it Um, supporting others that are maybe in in the field or do you see the kind of worst case scenarios or how do you get that practice element of things as well as obviously the the research element of things
1: I mean first off Sharon we are applied researchers uh, in exercise science and sports nutrition We, we are truly applied researchers so we're often faced with a problem as ricardo just gave a really good example one in terms of gi disturbances and then we go away and we design studies accordingly to better understand the problems and then we we have to pull through into practical applications certainly that's always the case with my work with the uk military and and with sports groups they're always looking for a solution so we, we we make that link well between, if you like, the laboratory uh, uh, and the athlete. We have to do that. I'm, my colleagues here published a nice paper on, you, you know, on you know paper to podium. That's the approach we take. And, and my team take the same approach with the military. Certainly the UKMOD wouldn't be funding any research that was sort of just pure blue skies, fun, fundamental research in the lab. So we're faced with problems, we come up with the solutions and then we, we apply them. I mean, a good example of that is, is the work we've done on heat acclimation where, you know, typically soldiers have to go and acclimate in a heat chamber or they go and move to a hot country. Our idea was that you can do your normal training and take a hot bath afterwards. You know, so I, <clears throat> I think there's good discussion to be had here about the practical implementation of nutritional exercise immunology I know I'll be talking about that on Friday at the SDA meeting, you know, for, for many years, we, we, we thought that we would give nutritional supplements to athletes to offset an apparent immune impairment in line with this open window theory. But I think we, we, we've now reconsidered that and, and we don't really fully acknowledge that athletes immune system is clinically lowered uh, during heavy training or after heavy exercise so i'm sure we'll get more into that during this th- th- this conversation but in short absolutely we are applied scientists dealing with problems
0: yeah lab in the field
1: absolutely yeah.
0: yeah um what are kind of some of the highlights i suppose of the journey um both you've kind of come together diverged come together diverged neil what would you say are some of the highlights of of your journey in terms of your um for you
1: that's a great question i, I would say that the highlights are the people actually i i think that you know when, when um you shared some of these questions it, it gave me a bit of time to reflect and you don't often do that when you're on the, the day-to-day craziness and treadmill I, I think i got lucky sharon you know i i <clears throat> I I was looking for a PhD. I was a a, a lecturer at at, um, Trinity and All Saints in Leeds, and I was looking for a PhD. And I I contacted somebody called Phil Jakeman, who was at Birmingham University, who published a paper on overtraining and immune measures. And I sent Phil an email. Uh, Phil was a very eminent scientist. And he said, oh, I'm afraid I'm leaving. I'm leaving Birmingham University. The person you need to contact is Michael Gleason. He's moving here from Coventry University and he's got a big interest in this topic. And I really got lucky, Sharon, because I I wasn't to know that at that point Mike was a very good exercise biochemist. I wasn't to know that he was going to become a leading light in this burgeoning new field of of exercise immunology. So I, you know, I I learned from the best, really. And I, I, I think that the people have been amazing that I got to work with and learn from. Uh, I look back now and I, a day doesn't pass where I don't think, golly, I was lucky to work with those people. And then I've, I suppose that I've tried to ever since Ricardo was a part of this, you know, try and you know do the same thing, create a really uh, a, 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 a dynamic team environment where we're trying to solve practical problems that you you alluded to you know i i was lucky to learn from people like mike Gleason on on the art of writing i'm still learning on that one you know and and other great people that i work with along the way roy shepherd golly there was so much i learned from him in the production of the exercise immunology position stands back in 2011 so i i think my message to you you know the younger people uh, going out there trying to become an applied sports nutrition you know practitioner is to, you know, don't forget research, find some of the best people to work with because the research underpins as Ricardo's nodding. I know, you know, it underpins the practice that that Ricardo talked about with his GI work. Go find the best, keep reading, read broadly and uh, go from there.
0: And Ricardo, what would you say are some of the highlights?
2: Well, I, I would mirror exactly what Neil just said. It is the people and the journeys that you take um, guess similar. I was you know very lucky that you know, I ended up in Birmingham, and I was able to work alongside Mike and Neil and Letty and Andy Blanan and Paula, um, and then uh, move on to, into dietetics and work with some you know, high very um, uh, very unique uh, clinical dietitians to gain experience there. And then again, fortunate enough to go, uh, meet up with Neil again, and then work alongside, you know, um, um, people like um, uh, Sam um, uh, and 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 Stuart uh, Lang, etc. Um, so definitely the people. But another thing I'll add there is also the athletes that we work with. I mean, a big highlight and what gives us a buzz is not necessarily publishing. Um, Publishing is just part of the job. I know a lot of people want to publish, want to get a paper and get all excited, but our excitement is when we get an athlete coming into the lab that hasn't, like example is, hasn't finished an Ironman in the last two years and used to be one of the world's best and been to all sports medics in Europe, even gone to a lot of the high-flying and big key names in sports nutrition, and no one can help him. No one can help him. He's still... Not not able to finish an iron because of his massive gastrointestinal issues. Then comes into our lab and within three hours you identify the problem, give him a strategy, and then two months later goes and wins an iron man and then finishes fifth in the next one. Well, that's just gives you a buzz that you can't imagine because you've identified the problem, you've helped someone, and you know, the tears that come to the eyes, some of these athletes that have been suffering for two years and suddenly their problems have been resolved to a certain extent. Um, that is that does give you a big buzz.
0: Absolutely. Um. I, I. Yeah, definitely. And we go then maybe the challenges, and I think all of us face challenges along the way. What kind of challenges, Ricardo, would, I suppose, be normal? Don't, you know, again, don't get faced with it. Take it, suck it in and, and learn from it. What would some of those be?
2: Oh, challenge. Oh, geez, we have those every single day. <laughs> <laughs> Where to start? Um. That, that, that's a very hard question. Um, oh, geez.
0: I'll let oh, you think I, about I, I, it a really, bit. I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit I stand on say,
1: that question. I, I would the, say the <laughs> biggest challenge in my career, w- without a shadow of a doubt, is time. I think that <clears throat> I, I can certainly speak to that challenge for an academic path you know if somebody wants to go down the sports nutrition academic path it's incredibly challenging certainly in the UK I think it's quite similar in Australia from what I've heard We, we as academics working in sports nutrition we have to be teachers we have to be researchers doing applied practice that informs you know what the athlete's doing day to day And we also have to be administrators as well, setting up a team, managing people, which, you know, is is, is challenging in itself. And to actually get a foothold in a career, you really need to do some decent applied work. And potentially, if you're an academic, obviously, you need to publish some good papers and doing that alongside, you know, teaching administration is extremely challenging. And then I suppose the other one for me is is that kind of quick fix short-termism that I see um, in, in academia now, I see it a bit in sports nutrition too, because as Ricardo said, everybody wants to publish the next paper and they want to you know, get out as many papers as they can. And that short-termism doesn't sit well with science really. When you think about it, great discoveries can often take years. And we are on a kind of a, a treadmill where we're trying to you know go from one project to another one applied project to another applied project and and one paper to another paper. And I think sometimes we come back to that time demand where we should spend some time thinking, planning, looking at the problem, reading broadly around the problem rather than just trying to just tweak a variable. And it's all a rush, really. I think, you know, it's hindsight's wonderful, isn't it? But I I, I do think making more time for these things it, it would be what I'd love to do.
0: Yeah, it is a that, that time costs um money, doesn't it? <laughs> and you know, if you had I suppose if you were able to bring in other people to help you in some of those positions, but again, it comes down to the finance and the funding, I think, for some of those yeah, things too. And,
1: and another problem I see regularly in younger academics and you know, working in sport nutrition is let's say say you're trying Sharon to do all of these things what do you go for? Do you go for the really narrow focus to try and get a foothold and become a leader sooner? And no doubt you will, if you become a leader on a a narrow focus in sports nutrition and it's hot, you will become well known quickly if that's what the the person wants to do and established as an academic and and a sports nutrition practitioner. But the problem for me is is the narrow focus. It might get you where you maybe wanna get career wise quicker But part of the problem, certainly in sports science, exercise, immunology has been the blinkers. You know, we have this very narrow focus and I've always spread myself very, very widely. Now, that that meant that my career path was slower because I was slowly becoming, you you know, established in a number of different sub disciplines, whether it's exercise, immunology, nutrition, sleep, hydration and heat. Because those were the problems I was dealing with for the military, and I had I have had to make myself broader. Now that's given me a lot more excitement in my career, being broader. But of course, it it, it doesn't get you where maybe the career you'd want to be quick enough. So I see yo- younger academics, applied practitioners. Do they do this and go really narrow, or, or do they do they go wide? I think. Some blend is required because if you read and and, and develop yourself narrowly, you're going to miss you're going to miss opportunities for cross pollination for you you know which have really excited me bringing sub disciplines together, Sharon.
0: And I think in terms of solution finding solutions, quite often a solution isn't in one particular fine area. Actually, the solution is a combination of things, and it's only the experience of seeing that before. Probably, I feel personally, there's no loss in something that you don't even think that's going to be relative to something down the line. It, it always plays a role. It always plays a role, I think. And I, I would agree with you. The broad base is very, very useful, I think probably. Um, Ricardo, any challenges?
2: Yeah, well, probably there's two main ones. One is more progressive and one is more uh, current. Um, so th- as I said, there's so many challenges that that goes through you know a career journey. But these two that come to mind. The first one is you know when I was an under- when I was a PhD student, so I finished my PhD stu- uh, 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 um, uh, um, degree, and I thought, yeah, I'm I'm an expert in this area, I know it all. But as I as as the years go by, as you start to explore that area more and you know that that area becomes more and more complex you go from the macro level to the micro level you start the, the the thing that appears is literally that statement is is very very correct is that the more you know the less you know or the more you know you know that you know nothing um and it's same thing happens with the you know the gastrointestinal tract and exercises i see a lot of publications, and I saw a lot of research, as, as Neil said, just focusing on one aspect. But as you get more expert in the area, you know that so many aspects and um, contribute to that particular um, area. So it, it becomes really difficult when someone asks you a question to try and be succinct and to the point because there's so much going in your mind that... The answer to that person is, I really can't answer you because I need to explain all this first before I can answer you. So, I guess the challenge there is taking a step back and 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 trying to be as succinct and the best you can to answer what is the question that's being uh, asked to you, um, and not get carried away by all these interactions and, and I guess the dynamic or the static interactions that that play into one particular sort of field or area of expertise. So that's been one one challenge is trying to bring everything that you know and, and, and try to make it simple, but it's not, it's just getting more and more complex. So I guess, yeah, young researchers or practitioners, lecturers going to this area, just bear in mind that as you go through your career, it might be more difficult to sort of explain things more simply because now it has been in my case. Um, and the other one is, Again, society and I guess the learning environment, the research environment is, is changing so much every year because of advances in technology and platforms. And I guess this goes back into Neil's comment on time. It's that you've got so much to do, teaching, your service, your, uh, your research, and then having to learn these new platforms and new technologies that come through acts as another sort of you know barrier and burden that we have to overcome both in time, but also the mental capability of trying to understand how these things work and, and how to use these things competently as well.
0: That's why we need to have face to face conferences back so that we can discuss the finer <laughs> minutiae over some hydration post um, presentation. Isn't that right, Ricardo? Yeah, oh,
2: absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
0: That, like, the you know the online medium is great, but we definitely I think need a bit of a blend there, don't we?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and so yeah, and
2: those going back to, I was just going to say going back to what Neil said um, uh, about um, having epiphanies or or uh, creating new ideas or being creative or new discoveries. A lot, a lot of these ideas come. You know, next to the kitchen sink, over a coffee, talking to your colleague—not necessarily over video conferencing—and certainly, that's during my career. I know a lot of ideas and creativities come just at, you know at the kitchen sink in the in the in the office. So that face-to-face is very crucial.
0: Yeah, hopefully we're getting back there. I hope so. Um, I suppose to kind of bring it now into the the nitty-gritty of stuff. I suppose what. Do you feel, Neil, you kind of alluded to it there a little bit around the, the supplements bit, but what do you think some of the landmark kind of key research outcomes are that has had a profound effect in terms of, let's say, the um, exercise immunology piece? Where do you, how has that developed over time?
1: Yeah, the, the, it's a wonderful story, really. Uh, the... The first paper that I, I know of on this discipline was Tomasi's 82 paper on cross country skiers. And they showed that in these skiers, their mucosal immunity, the level of IGA in saliva was lower in skiers who were training hard at rest compared with controls, and then lowered further after a heavy bout across country ski race. And then what happened were there there were a few reviews around that time, dare I say it in the 80s, um, Lynn Fitzgerald in London, and David Keist's review in Australia. Those were, you know, raising the prospect that exercise might lower the immune system and and render athletes more susceptible to infections. What followed was David Neiman's seminal papers on marathon runners at the LA Marathon, 1990, I think the papers published. And it wasn't for another 16 years until Ekblom's group were the first to sort of challenge this. They, they challenged the idea that after a heavy bout of exercise like a marathon, that inf- that infections didn't increase. And the reason that David Neiman had shown this increase in infections after a marathon was because he didn't take account of infection symptoms before a marathon and Ekblom did that and showed that there were no there was no increase in infection symptoms at all but in this 16 years or so between the the initial paper by David Neiman and the Ekblom one we um, Ricardo and I we all we all were starting out in this discipline And we were looking at countermeasures, nutritional countermeasures to what we assumed was an immune impairment. So in athletes after heavy exercise, we thought there was this open window where the immune system dips off because we were told that in these papers. And we were giving carbohydrate, glutamine, you name it. We tried it over many years to try and, um, you know, bolster the immune system. But then the paper of Ekblom and a few others in recent years have challenged the the idea, Campbell and Turner's paper, debunking the myth of the open window and exercise immune suppression, have kind of challenged that that's the case, that athletes really are clinically immune suppressed. So I, I think one of the problems in this discipline, it comes back to the reading very narrowly, unfortunately, which is we are exercise scientists and we like to think Sharon, that everything is to do with exercise. You know, we, exercise is medicine, you know, so we, we, we focus on that. But we, we didn't really recognize for, for decades that there was this other whole field of psychoneuroimmunology that was very well established, much more so than exercise immunology. And they've known for years that psychological stress, anxiety, depression influenced the immune system. And so, even our group, we went and looked back at some of our old data, and we were shocked to see we we, we could see that exercise that was very long-lasting can lower the immune system a little bit. But when we went back and reanalyzed that data with a new perspective, with a broader perspective, we had already assessed the stress and anxiety when the individuals came to the lab in the morning for their exercise, and these were familiarized individuals. And what shocked us in this reanalysis was that your level of stress and anxiety when you came to the lab dictated how your immune system would respond to the exercise that hadn't yet happened. And so it changed our mindset, really. And we in my team were certainly already thinking much more broadly in a multidimensional way, thinking about problems like sleep, psychological stress and anxiety, uh, as well as nutrition, of course. So I. We've come on a heck of a path really from the eighties. I joined up in the nineties as a PhD student and Ricardo a little bit later, but we sort of, we, we sort of took it as read if you like that exercise was sup- suppressed the immune system. It caused an open window. It meant that athletes got more sick. You need all these nutritional countermeasures and we now question it. But the thing we don't wanna do is have a knee jerk reaction here. And we don't wanna say, oh, that means that's the end of this now. Infection is not a problem for athletes. and Because that would be completely and utterly wrong. Infection is the second most often cited problem that athletes have that causes underperformance uh, after only injury. So infection is a major problem and we need to focus on, you know, strategies to, to combat that. Is it the exercise alone that's suppressing the immune system in athletes? No, probably not. It's probably stress, anxiety, sleep disruption, the heavy training as well, maybe something linked with nutrition. But I think it's that we've we've come on a very long path to, to that point, Sharon.
0: That's a, a really good way of looking at it. Again, a broad picture as opposed to <clears throat> specific, specific issues. And it might be the reason why athletes don't present in the same way all the time, you know, you would, you know, that probably has a link there. Ricardo, how would you, how would you see the area um, in terms of gastroenterology ha- having developed?
2: Again, now, the area of gastroenterology from a clinical <laughs> perspective, it's, it's been around for centuries, but uh, exercise gastroenterology, similar to the immune uh, ex, ex, um, uh, exercise immunology, it's actually quite novel. And again, some of the earlier research has just been sports medics case reports in the 70s and 80s that assessed, you know, severe symptoms associated with colitis, so it is with um, faecal blood losses or vomiting uh, blood. Um, then in the late 80s, early 90s, we've got some uh, some some research looking into the possible reasons for this. And a key feature there was the blood flow, the splenic hyperperfusion, so the blood flow moving away from the gut. Um, and then also in that same decade, we started to look at, or the researchers started to look at uh, functional responses, so it, things like gastroparesis and paralytic ileus, literally it's just shut down of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, so a picture started to emerge that the symptoms that athletes were presenting it doesn't necessarily come from one thing so there's not a one size fits all and similar to what just Neil presented we now know that the gastrointestinal symptoms that athletes present in response to exercise um it's multifactorial and it's it and it can come from what you've done before exercise your your lifestyle status before exercise the actual Mode, intensity, duration, environmental conditions of the exercise, the nutritional practices in terms of feeding during exercise, the mode, the type, fluids, solids, um, composition of carbohydrates, whether it's starch, uh, short, short-chain um, carbohydrate, fermentable carbohydrates, etc., um, all the way through to the gut microbiota composition and the short-chain fatty acid composition, both in the lumen and in the in, in the blood. So. That's just a snapshot of the multifactorial uh, aspects that can influence um, how the gastrointestinal tract responds to the exercise stress. So we know we do know that exercise stress is not good for the gut, literally shuts it down um, and pushes blood flow away from the area. So the gut is not made uh, uh, for exercise. But we do know that there are a lot of factors. That um, the athlete presents before exercise and behavioural practices during exercise that will uh, result in the incidence, the type, and the severity of symptoms. So it's a very complex picture. There's not a one-size-fits-all. And again, if you look, a lot, a lot of the a lot of the research that I'm seeing coming through is actually a bit sad because they're focusing on that one particular aspect and think it's this is the problem that's causing all problems instead of looking at it more holistically and that's why we're moving away from um, we're looking at uh, researching strategies whether they work or not but in terms of applied that application is now moving towards individual assessment and individual therapeutic intervention
0: and i suppose that brings a little bit to kind of some of the practices that's going on out there where there is this kind of Um, shotgun approach that if you throw enough stuff at stuff you'll get a a, something's bound to stick um and we probably see that with a lot of supplements around probiotics maybe some of the um, vitamin c zincs etc in terms uh, where are we with that or how do we influence or suggest that maybe there are other options or is it the way to go
2: Neil,
1: you wanna? Yeah, you wanna look, go for it? yeah. So the, the, I alluded to this a little bit earlier on, Sharon, in that we we spent much of the '90s looking for uh, countermeasures to what we thought was an immune impairment after heavy exercise. So giving carbohydrate to try and maintain blood glucose and blunt the stress hormone cortisol, because we thought cortisol was the bad guy. We now don't necessarily think that cortisol is always a bad guy at all. Um, We looked at recovery drinks. I know that was part of Ricardo's PhD. And we showed little changes in in, in immune system function. And now the, the more reasoned approach is that actually the immune system isn't typically zapped in the hours after heavy exercise. It's lowered, that's for sure, it's lowered, but clinically so, not necessarily. And what I think we need right now is is a more nuanced approach. In my sports medicine review in 2019, I spent a long time on this topic, thinking about this topic and and, and how do we take this forward? And it dawned on me from some broader reading that I'd done, uh, a broader immunology, it was the ecology group in immunology, who had shown in insects that <clears throat> actually it's it's wrong just to think of the immune system and its weaponry. We need to think that the immune system makes a decision at times about going into a fight, or saying no, maybe I shouldn't fight this one. I'll, I'll let it just I'll let it just hang there. I'll keep it at bay a little bit so it doesn't become a problem. This pathogen, and I'll save some energy because of course alerting an immune response costs a lot of energy on the body, a lot of energy. And work in the bumblebee that just blew my mind had shown that in fasted bumblebees, when they stimulated the bee to make a big immune response, they often died. But when the bee was well nourished and they stimulated fully the immune response, the survival was pretty good. So this really demonstrates the huge cost of the immune system going crazy. And those scientists talk about two concepts. They talk about resistance, immune resistance, which is the weaponry, the keeping the pathogen at bay by killing it basically. And then the other concept is one of tolerance, which is allowing the pathogen to be there, just like in Ricardo's world, the bacteria in the gut. You know, the immune system, if it was just primed to attack all the time, towards resistance, it would obliterate all of the bacteria in the gut, which, of course, it doesn't do. So the gut is a fabulous example of, of resistance and tolerance. And in that paper, you know, I talk quite a bit about why some of the supplements do work really well, Sharon. And those supplements that work well, unsurprisingly, when you look back through this new lens, are those that improve tolerance. So when you have a big immune response, when you say you've got COVID or the flu, it's that huge inflammatory response that can do for you, unfortunately, and that you're trying to blunt. Uh, And blunting that successfully will reduce the severity of the infection and the duration of the infection, but it won't necessarily stop the infection happening at all. And some of the supplements that do really quite well are those what i call tolerogenic supplements like the ones you mentioned so vitamin c that has the antioxidant effects um vitamin d is also anti-inflammatory probiotics have some anti-inflammatory benefits as well so i think that's the direction for me obviously not everybody will agree because as scientists we always disagree you know that's just what we do um but i think there's you know, good reason that we should be not forgetting supplements. They absolutely have a place, but it needs to be specific and individualized, as Ricardo said, with this resistance and tolerance model in mind,
0: Sharon. And Ricardo, in terms of any added benefits from a gastrointestinal GI point of view, where where are we looking Mm -hmm. at there?
2: So in t- in terms of um uh, gastrointestinal strategies, it depends on which pathway or which, um, I guess, uh, a causal factor that you're trying to target. Are you trying to target the integrity of the epithelial lining? Are you trying to target the, the functions such as gastric emptying, peristalsic activity, d- digestion absorption? Um, are you trying to inhibit or uh, reduce the endotoxemia, bacteremia? Um, uh, Etc. So, different dietary and nutritional supplements have been shown, again, in controlled uh, experiments, to be beneficial. The ones which, for example, target the integrity is carbohydrates and/or proteins during exercise. So, there's nothing magic there. It's simply from the uh, in vitro and animal models, and also the positive effects in humans just providing some nutrition along the GI tract will keep the blood flow will keep the microvascular uh, blood flow along the villi. Uh, there's nothing strange in that when you consume a meal uh, post-prandially that's what happens the blood flow goes to the area so during exercise we've clearly shown in our lab that if you provide small amounts of carbohydrate uh, at the start and frequently uh, you can maintain the integrity of the gastrointestinal tract. In other words Reduce their epithelial injury, reduce the translocation, reduce some of those key cytokine responses. Um, protein also does the same thing, but the problem is, is in terms of exercise, the gastrin test, the tolerance to the protein consumed during exercise wasn't as good, so it creates more symptoms simply because of the trafficking along the GI tract. Um, in terms of the functional elements, so that was integrative. From the functional element, we now from the Going from the clinical data to moving it into the exercise gastro- gastroenterology data, we now clearly have shown that the provision or the FODMAP content of the pre-exercise diet uh, can impact on the functional element of the gut. So in other words, um, providing more malabsorption of those foods consumed the day before pre-exercise um, and that resulting in increase in. Um, symptoms, but on the posi- on the on the other hand, those high FODMAPs which are going to cause the symptoms actually are feeding the gastrointestinal bacteria, which are increasing the short chain fatty acid, and there's the short chain fatty acid which are producing beneficial effects on the integrity. So again, it's like, what do you? Uh, uh, an, an analogy we tell the athlete is, what do you want? Do you want to have no symptoms but have more no injury? Or do you want to have symptoms and have no injury? Because it seems like whether you use one strategy or the other, you, um, you'll cause one or the other. So you can't really have uh, both at the same time. So that's why the individual, when you look at research in a singularity perspective and whether something works or not, it, it, it has its place in, uh, in, in applied uh, application, in applied practice. But... Again, you've got to use it holistically and not necessarily just a, a, a one-fix approach.
0: There's definitely lots of takeaways there in terms of practice um, for me that I'll, I'll I'll have a look at, hopefully over the, the coming weeks and months. And I suppose just to um, finish off, really, um, I think we're probably very lucky that both of you guys are, are coming to speak at both um SDA and SNGs um conference um I'd love to be able to go to SDA (laughs) to to see that but uh, I'm sure we'll get some feedback there I suppose as as practitioners is there a key thing that you would give advice to in terms of 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 the rest of us or, or of other practitioners of things that we could do to try and, you know, enhance our abilities um, as working with athletes in, in the field. Neil, I'll start with you.
1: I'll pass that one to Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> as Ricardo does a lot of more, more work with athletes right now than I do, for sure.
2: Well, I guess my take home message is follow your passion. So uh, don't focus on, you know, trying to be at the top of your game. Say, for example, you know, I want to be a practitioner for the Olympic athletes and I want to do this, I want to work at Formula One, I want to work here and there. Just let your career and let your passion drive where you want to go. And if if you... um, provide an expertise above everybody else in that field, you will get to that position. So I guess the goal should be is not not aim for one specific thing, but follow what your passion is and what you like, because you'll adhere to that for much longer time. And then you can develop yourself a lot better. Um, And then those athletes will come to you and those opportunities will come to you.
0: Neil, anything to add to that or? Yeah, I
1: I suppose something that I've seen quite a bit in my career with with the work that I've done in sports nutrition is fashion. You know, there there just seems to be uh, a, a spate of papers on one topic and then that's the practical uh, supplement that everybody's talking about. You're smiling as well, Sharon. So I think you know we we were very familiar with this. That there seems to be one supplement, and then the next, and the research follows often what the athletes are doing. I, I think I, I would want to get the basics right first you know the, the bottom bit of the pyramid right first and, and and uh ricardo's alluded to some of that you know the individual approaches that are required with each athlete but i think less fashion i think more good fundamental well-supported research that, that's, that underpins supplements nutrition uh, applications for sure
0: the non-sexy stuff
1: yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> everything that glitters and all of that. Yeah, I, I agree, Sharon. I think it's a bit too much focus on the the the, the glittery stuff at times.
0: <laughs> Sometimes people need a little bit of glitter. I suppose Thank that's you. the, um, but just don't get. I suppose no,
1: don't,
0: don't get lost in it. I think. Well,
2: the the glitter yeah. comes comes and goes. Yeah. yes. But, but as you grow, you get little bits of glitter coming on you from the from Absolutely. the residue.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um well, I suppose in in my role um, as chair of um, the sports Nutrition group of the BDA, um there are a few things that you know that is this is fantastic and and this is a real privilege for me to be able to do this on behalf of our group and sDA um today. and and I think I, I on behalf of both groups would like to thank both Neil and Ricardo for giving up their time so freely um to to develop this resource, I think for for both of our groups and in terms of our practitioners, because it's these chats here, that kind of the nuggets that come out of it, or maybe thinking points that people can have. just to say thank you very much looking forward to seeing you both at, at both our conferences and i certainly would hope that in the next year or so that we can see both of you guys in real life um, at various different things rather than beyond the screen so um, on behalf of everybody thank you very much for your time
2: thank you uh, thanks for invite thank you